Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, August 6, 2010. No Friday light today. Yeah, I know, that's crazy, isn't it? What am I thinking? Oh, I I gave that up a long time ago. I, I don't think anymore. I'm over it. I've just stopped. I've decided to embrace irrational postmodernity. Words have no meanings. Ideas and sins, they don't have any consequences. I I'm joking, yeah. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, normally on Friday, we do a Friday light. However, I was gone middle of the week and uh, uh, at a speaking engagement, a local speaking engagement, and needed needed to prepare for it. And as a result of it, I did not do a program on Wednesday. And rather than do a Friday light and continue with our lecture from Dr. Ken Samples, I thought I would do a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith today. And this freeze, it kind of makes it uh, possible to do a couple of things that we're going to do here. And, uh, you know, firstly, the thing I'll talk about first, what is the last part of the program is today we're going to, we're going to finish listening up to uh, three of the four parts of a recent sermon series. I don't, I don't, I, I don't think I've actually ever reviewed an entire sermon series. I still haven't reviewed the whole thing. But I, uh, uh, I today we're finishing up part three of a four-part sermon series, and we're not going to do four, um, entitled Domination by Church by the Glades, Pastor David Hughes. And um, the reason I'm doing this is because the sermon series itself was supposed to be a, uh, a, it, it basically four weeks in the book of Joshua, and David Hughes did not teach the book of Joshua, not at all. And, uh, I mean, his theology is convoluted to say the least. And basically complete confusion of law and gospel, false gospel being preached, complete mangling of uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, yeah, ripping verse 11 out of context and using it as a universal application when it isn't. So today we're finishing up and it's the sermon that we're going to be reviewing is a very frustrating sermon because it's that this is the type of preaching that creates the impression that there's two classes of Christians. Uh, you've got those who are pulling it off. Those are your super spiritual, obedient Christians. And then the other class are people, you know, these are your second class citizens, you know, and he, uh, Pastor David Hughes refers, refers to them as almost. They're almost Christians. 
Now, he he says, good news, you still go to heaven, but you just, you're not doing enough to experience God's blessings in life. But good news is that he's given four steps, four things that you have to do. And if if you do them, then God will see that you're serious and uh, he will bless you uh, with abundance with uh with momentum and things like that. I mean, it just absolutely is frustrating. So that will be we're going to we're going to wrap that up today in hour number 2. So that's you stay tuned if you haven't listened to it. It's it's actually insightful to kind of listen to the flow of the major portion of the sermon series. Now, the final sermon itself is being preached this Sunday in the sermon we're not in the series we're not going to be reviewing it because well, he's gotten through his four points as of uh the sermon review that we do today. So I think you get the gist of what's going on, and boy, did he really badly, terribly handle God's word. But uh, that's, again, coming up in hour number two. Uh, in this hour, in this hour of fighting for the faith, um, have you ever wondered what Jesus is really like? Yeah, I'm. Um, we're going to be listening to audio from a video uh, from a guy by the name of Rob DeLuca, and um, this is from the 2010 Love Conquers Conference in Auckland, New Zealand. And, um, uh, well, Rob DeLuca Ministries, and uh, this is a guy by the name of Roland Baker. And he shares about uh, the personality and nature of Jesus. And uh, so, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's from Rob DeLuca Ministries. They're the people who put out the video. And Roland Baker is the guy speaking and uh you know how from time to time I joke about the fact that uh you know people talk as if they've gone out to Starbucks with Jesus and you know sat down at you know and enjoyed a coffee a coffee or a macchiato or a venti mocha or something like that with Jesus as uh, Roland Baker uh, shares this story um he, um uh he's claiming that um well, in the story, somebody, I'm not sure if it's him or somebody else, uh, went to Hawaii with Jesus. <laughs> yeah, you know, hung out in Hawaii with Jesus and 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 can personally attest to, you know, Jesus' personality and, and things about Jesus that you just wouldn't get from the scriptures because, they, well, they've, they've spent some personal time with um, Jesus. <laughs> so... We're going to be listening to that shortly here. Um, uh, got news uh, regarding that uh, that uh, professor who uh, was uh, f- fired for basically uh, giving in class, answering a question in class where he gave the Catholic position on sexuality and homosexuality. And he was, and this was in Illinois, and he was fired. Well, we've got news on that front. He's been reinstated. So we're going to be reading a story that talks about that today. Um, it, I've gotten for the past couple of days. If you watch Twitter, I mean, I follow a lot of the leadership network, Bill uh, Willow Creek guys. I mean, everybody's been really excited about uh, the Willow Creek Association leader annual leadership conference. Yay! And uh, so Lillian Kwan of the uh, Christian Post has uh, written a write up about this leadership summit, and the headline reads: "Jesus fires up leadership." summit crowd and i mean so my immediate question was is after jesus got done hanging out with this guy in hawaii did he fly over to uh chicago and you know and drive into the suburbs there in in south barrington and and did jesus actually make an appearance on the stage at uh, the uh, willow creek leadership summit (laughs) 
<laughs> just, you know, I, the, the way <laughs> we'll be reading that story and, you know, making sure that Jesus didn't, sh- you know, appear at the uh, Willow Creek Leadership Summit. And uh, let's see here. Um, and th- th- part three, we didn't get to this yesterday. I, I wanted to get to this. Ed Stetzer is his part three of calling for contextualization. Uh, his uh, third installment is entitled Knowing and Making God Known. And I, I want to read it because so, I you know, want to continue to, uh, you know, beat this dead horse if I could and talk about this contextualization thing. Again, I'm coming from the position that folks are just making it harder than it really is. But uh, so uh, Ed Stetzer part three is uh, is uh, going to be happening today on the program. And I think that's all we're going to have time for uh, before we uh, get to our sermon review. So lots of stuff to do today. It's a wonderful, uh, relaxing Friday, uh, you know, August here in, in, in central Indiana. We had a rip-roaring thunderstorm the other night, too, man. It, it was so hot. They uh, We had those, uh, they call them pop-up thunderstorms. I mean, as soon as it started getting, you know, evening, the thunderstorms came in, and they, that was a spectacular light show. Talk about, wow. Something that, you know, thunderstorms seem to be a regular feature here in the Midwest. When I was in Southern California, they were kind of a rare event. But here in the Midwest, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, no, they happen quite frequently. Anyway, I'm off on a tangent. Uh, make yourself comfortable. Feel free to uh, kick up your feet if you can and uh, enjoy the show. And uh, if you want to enjoy an adult beverage, do not have a problem with that. Keep in mind, though, that, that is a gift from God that is not to be abused. And uh, drunkenness does take it beyond what Christ has uh, used, uh, given us that gift for. And then, of course, if you want to wear fuzzy bunny slippers, they do enhance your uh, listener experience. But uh, keep in mind, if, if you are in a warm weather climate, you don't want to wear fuzzy bunny slippers. It could make it really bad. I don't know why I did that dramatically. Okay. <laughs> Let's... Uh... <clears throat> What is Jesus really like? Have you ever wanted to know? Well, Roland Baker, speaking for Rob DeLuca Ministries, he could tell you from personal experience what Jesus is really like. Let's listen in. As um, well, if he was uh, on the uh, show, the last comic standing, he he wouldn't be voted back the next week. But here is uh, Roland Baker telling us what Jesus is really like. Way happier than I thought. So Jesus is way happier than you thought. Okay. Way more fun to be with. Oh, so Jesus is way more fun to be with than you thought it would be. Okay. I have a very prophetic friend who was taken by God to Hawaii for two weeks just to sit and have visions. Visions. And he had two weeks of visions of Jesus on earth with his disciples just to see what his personality was like. So let me see if I got this straight. A very prophetic friend of yours was taken by God to Hawaii. While he was in Hawaii, he had two full weeks of prophetic visions of what Jesus and his disciples were like while he was in Hawaii. Um, if I told you I wasn't buying it, would uh, you be surprised? Really? Uh, in Hawaii, of all places. Huh. I wonder why Hawaii. What it was like to hang around him. And you know the Hollywood movies. Jesus just staring, 
and sober and holy and scary. <laughs> you just didn't dare ask him anything. Yeah, he's got a weird nervous laugh thing going on here. Like, you know, he's trying to deliver a joke that isn't really going over well. You didn't dare joke. You just didn't dare anything. You just sit and listen. <laughs> but Jesus wasn't like that at all. He was very fun-loving, very approachable, very easy to hang out with. Everybody loves hanging out with him. Sinners, kids, you name it, they just piled around him, sat down with him, laughed and joked and had a great time, talked. So easy to be with. And frustrating, too. What's <laughs> with <laughs> the nervous laugh there? Um by the way, notice what he's doing here. He's giving you extra biblical information about Jesus. This is not recorded in scripture, but don't worry. His friend, who he knows is very prophetic, you know, God sent him to Hawaii. And for two whole weeks while he was in Hawaii, he had visions that were, you know, it was like being able to watch, you know, uh, a reality TV show of Jesus and his uh, disciples. And he was able to learn from these very prophetic visions uh, that uh, Jesus is very approachable. People love to hang out with him, but he's also frustrating. Okay, tell me more. The disciples were just ready to go. Come on, Jesus, we got to get to the next town. Sun setting, you know, and he's taking a nap in the olive grove. You know, so what are they supposed to do? <laughs> They're completely stuck without him. <laughs> I can't believe that there's people listening to this guy and believing him. If he goes to sleep, that's it. We're... We're not going anywhere. <laughs> There's that nervous laugh again. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds demonic. He's just so insensitive. Asleep in the storm on the boat, you know. <laughs> All hell's breaking loose and he's snoozing. I was talking with Winky Prattney last night and he's really mellowed out. <laughs> <laughs> he came up with some research, found out that John Wesley had a visitation w once. Very powerful. <laughs> what? John Wesley had a visitation? You, you mean like a Todd Bentley uh, glory cloud visitation? Was there gold dust and feathers? And God announced told John Wesley, I'm an entertainer. <laughs> okay, so if I'm supposed to take you seriously, even though you got this weird, bizarre, almost demonic, nervous laugh thing that's going on here, your friend spent time having visions about what Jesus and his disciples were like, and then also found out that John Wesley had a visitation from God and God's big revelation to John Wesley was that God is an entertainer. Really? And you are my entertainment. <laughs> There's that nervous. Again, it, it, it kind of weird. <laughs> point of it at all is to celebrate with him and to enjoy having a good time with him. That's the whole, he's just like us. He didn't wait for thousands of years just to see you starve and fast and serve and work 
in the desert on the mission field. He loves that. He appreciates that. That's quality. But if that's where it ends, we miss the whole point. It's not where it ends. Oh, really? Um, so what is the point? Please enlighten us with your inside information that you got directly from the throne room of God. Where it ends is... <laughs> we have a kind of a grim view of what it's like to be joined to God in, in His presence. <laughs> we just need our minds expanded. He's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> okay. Um, wow. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I don't believe a word of it. In fact, I would say based upon the nervous laugh and the information, the fact that it doesn't actually comport with what's written in Scripture and you're claiming to be getting direct revelation from God, apart from Scripture, the stuff that wasn't recorded for us, I just, um, I'm not buying it. Nope, 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 um, nope, I'm not buying it. I, folks, these these people are charlatans. They are uh, graduates of King and the Duke uh, Seminary, and they're there to fleece the flock. And they, they do these things and go on and on and on about their visions and stuff like that because they will not be bound by the Word of God. These people are enemies of God, and they're enemies of the church. And it's absolutely just a, an abomination that the church continues to put up with these guys and give them a forum to talk. They have no business talking to anybody about God, let alone speaking to a so-called Christian church. Moving along. From the Christian Post, headline reads, Jesus fires up leadership summit crowd. Wow. I didn't know Jesus was into firing up leadership summit folks. By Lillian Kwan of the Christian Post, uh, tens of thousands of pastors, ministry leaders, and corporate leaders gathered at over a hundred sites across North America for Willow Creek's 15th annual Leadership Summit. Okay. The summit has become the go-to event for leaders who are serious about being better at what they do, whether it's shepherding a flock. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> Willow Creek doesn't teach pastors to shepherd a flock they teach pastors to tell their sheep to become self-feeders <laughs> um, sorry I, I don't know what Lillian was thinking when she wrote this okay uh, whether they want to do better at f shepherding a flock growing a business or yeah that's what most churches are yeah uh -huh, or becoming a more passionate follower of Christ really I, if I want to be a more passionate follower of Christ then I need to go to Willow Creek's Leadership Summit? How did people uh, who wanted to be passionate about Christ do it before the summit came around? Uh, before digging into his notes for the summit's first session on Thursday, Pastor Bill Hybels of Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois, made it clear that the summit is not a hand-holding therapy group which leaders whine about how lonely it is at the top. Neither is it a hyped-up motivational seminar where leaders gloss over the struggles. And uh, it's definitely not a two-day church service with bad choirs and endless preaching, he said. Okay. Um, remember, the headline read, Jesus Fires Up Leadership Summit. So I'm trying to read this to find out if Jesus actually showed up to kind of fire everybody up. Quote, we are, we are realistic leaders who are trying to lead better in the world, the well-known megachurch pastor simply put. 
Quote, the summit is a leadership development event that is unashamedly Christ-centered. But in addition to that, it's intellectually challenging and it's a high-intensity environment. We're results-oriented here at the summit. We actually want every one of you to get better at what you lead, Heibel said. Uh, when did Jesus show up? I, yes, nothing about Jesus, except for he did mention that they are Christ-centered. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. After beginning with uh, 245 leaders at the South Barrington campus in 1995, the summit has grown to involve some 100,000 leaders from all spheres of society in 76 countries. The two-day event is beamed live from Willow Creek to sites in the United States and Canada and then later broadcast at sites throughout the world. The, this year, the Willow Creek Association aptly changed the title of the event to the Global Leadership Summit. Hybels, who has led his flock now from uh, of more than two, 22,000 for nearly 35 years, kicked off this year's event offering attendees a simple piece of wisdom. Quote, leaders move people from here to there, he said. It's a lot tougher than it seems. Woo, yeah. Leaders move people from here to there, so... If you're a leader, you need to go tell people to move from here. Yeah, and you got to tell them that they got to go there. And then you it, that's really difficult to do. And but Jesus is the one who fired up the folks at the leadership summit. I'm still waiting to hear if Jesus showed up. Uh many people are comfortable with the here and they refuse to make the move to there. He said from experience and making there sound amazing won't make them budge. Right. Instead, when vision casting, the leader has to make here sound awful, Hybels has learned. Right, yeah. So those of you who are uh, leaders and you're trying, if you're confused about what it is that you actually do, um, leaders are to move people from here and move them to there, okay? And the way you do that is not by making there sound great, but by making here sound awful. So... Yeah, by the way, I, I was able to broadcast this for free. You didn't have to pay for it. And by the way, my, my master's degree is uh, a master's degree in business administration with an emphasis on leadership and organizational change. So um, you are getting this information, although it's secondhand from the Willow Creek Leader Global Leadership Summit. But uh, you are getting it from somebody who is qualified to be discussing leadership. And so... Um, you know, consider this to be a blessing that you're getting this all for free. Um, let me see. Uh, so let me continue. Quote, the smartest moves I ever made as a leader didn't come from my human wisdom, he stressed. It came from promptings. Mm-hmm. A wisdom beyond my own, my own. Oh, okay. So you had visitations of the glory cloud? Promptings or whispers from God. Oh, okay. Are what led Hybels to start a church that later, and later to serve pastors with resources and events like the Leadership Summit. Hmm. Subjective stuff. Challenging attendees on a different level, Jim Collins, the best-selling author of Good to Great, provided a more technical view of great leadership. The acclaimed business thinker has long studied successful corporations and most recently looked into how great enterprises fall. Anyone can fall, he said. No company, no church, no nation, no society, no individual person is immune. After researching organizations, Collins found that though many of them look strong and healthy on the outside, they can actually already be in the stages of decline. Highlighting a critical point, he noted, these stages are are largely self-inflicted. Organizational decline 
is more what you do to yourselves than what happens to you. He identified five stages of decline in order. They are hubris born of success, undisciplined pursuit of more, denial of risk and peril, grasping for salvation and capitulation to irrelevance or death. Hmm. Neither Bill Hybels or Jim Collins, by the way, are Jesus Christ. And the headline did read, Jesus Fires Up Leadership Summit Crowd. Again, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out, I mean, if, if Hybels was actually able to get Jesus to show up at the leadership summit. Hmm. We continue. Collins, who has studied 7,000 years of corporate history, revealed a finding from his research that he found quite surprising. What separates great leaders from the good, the level five leaders from the level four ones, is humility. Ah, okay. Quote, I cannot overstate how surprising this was, he said. The greatest leaders in our studies, their signature was their humility. He also noted that big enterprises don't get in trouble when they get complacent or slow down. That's not how the mighty fall, he said. Overreaching and too much expansion and adventure are what bring down the mighty, he said. Hmm, overreaching, too much expansion, and adventure. <clears throat> well, you might want to have a chat with these uh, leaders because, uh, well, a lot of these pastors, this is what they're preaching from this, the pulpit. <clears throat> Again, Jesus fires up Leadership Summit crowd. When did Jesus show up at the Leadership Summit? Uh, what got attendees most fired up and on their feet on Thursday was the passionate testimony of Christine Kane, pastor at Hillsong church in sydney australia hillsong is heretical <clears throat> more than anything it was preaching on jesus that stirred up the leaders oh quote i am still old school enough to believe that jesus christ is the hope of the world she said jesus is still in the business of saving people <clears throat> christine kane pastor at hillsong preached well it was a leadership summit <laughs> kane is founder of the a21 campaign an organization dedicated to the care and healing of victims of human trafficking she said her heart broke when she tried to comfort a young girl in a brothel with a testimony of how great god is the girl responded angrily saying well if god is so great then why didn't you come sooner there's a sense of hopelessness all over the world and a generation crying out where are you kane told attendees while the world is wondering if there is hope, Cain underscored, we have that hope. As a woman who grew up in a Greek Orthodox family where women are not encouraged to rise up, who immigrated to Australia only to be marginalized, who was abused by several men, and who found out at the age 32 that she was adopted, Cain urged Christians to lead people who are in darkness to a place of hope, just as she was led. Does this mean repentance and the forgiveness of sins? I'm just a little confused. Uh, quote, I am not talking about wishful thinking. That's what the world offers, she said. I'm talking about confident expectation that this word is true, that Jesus is still in the business of fixing broken lives. Oh, and if he did it for me, then he can do it for you. Oh, that's not the gospel. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the, uh, Jesus in the business of, bro of fixing broken lives 
and he did it for me, he can do it for you. That's not the biblical gospel. That's something completely different. To this day, Cain does not know the facts of her conception, whether she was born out of wedlock or the result of rape, but rather than hold anger or sadness, the Hillsong leader passionately holds on to God's word, in particular Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, which states, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Scripture doesn't say, you are the result of rape, but it says you are his creation. Cain declared to loud applause from attendees at Willow Creek Campus and at the satellite uh, site of the First Baptist Church of uh, Glen Arden, Maryland. I'm passionate because once you've tasted of this hope, you can't lose sight of it. It's Jesus, she said. <clears throat> the job of the church is to take the hope, the light inside of them, and then to penetrate the darkness, she stressed. No, the job of the church is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's what Jesus told us to do. Read Luke 24. Uh, Every bit of light matters, she said. Our hope does not lie in the size of our churches. Our hope does not lie in the size of our budget. Our hope, what resources we have. I'm living proof. I don't have any of that. Our hope lies in this fact that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, died on the cross, and rose again from the dead so that every single person can have forgiveness and a brand new start and a hope for the future. Our hope lies in Jesus. In a standing ovation, the summit crowd responded to the passionate testimony with one word, wow. So apparently a female pastor was able to that's talk about Jesus. He's in the, you know, cause Jesus is still in the business of changing lives and, you know, and if he did it for me, he can do it for you. <sighs> Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And by the way, Hillsong is a price prosperity heresy church. They have no business showing up at any church that claims to be a historic, uh, well, in accord with the historic Christian faith. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, uh, you can do so. Uh, my email address is talkback at uh, fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-beater system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. 
turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR, or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, 
Hillsong United out of Australia, Prosperity Heretics. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can do so and make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Yeah, you know, folks... I've received many emails over the years from people and I've listened to several uh, long sermons and and segments uh, from the Hillsong folks. And uh, they are, it's it. Think of it as Trinity broadcasting network. They are TBN type prosperity preachers in Australia. I have no idea why Bill Hybels? Well, actually, I think I, I know. I can think of one reason why Bill Hybels would uh, have somebody from Hillsong featured there. And it has to do with the fact that they have a very large church. The thing is, is that the size of the church is not what's in, is not the indicator of whether or not Jesus Christ is blessing a congregation. That's the size of the, of the church does not equal blessing. Okay, in many senses nowadays, if you have a large church, people should be suspicious. That's not to say that God can't bless a church and for it to grow large. However, the churches that are really growing large are the ones that are not preaching the biblical gospel soundly. They're preaching life change or life tips or life strategies or self-help or prosperity, which Hillsong United is all about prosperity. You pay them and they become prosperous while telling you that that's how you become prosperous is by giving them your money. And, uh, you know, it's just just absolutely deceitful and uh, duplicitous. Bill Hybels should not be inviting folks from Hillsong nor T.D. Jakes or any of the TBN-type preachers to uh, be speaking at his events, and yet he's done that year after year after year, showing no biblical discernment and in a very real way um, you know, treating God's Word and what Christ has commanded us uh, like it's, it's toilet paper. You don't, as a Christian, you don't want to give credibility to somebody who teaches a different gospel or a heretic. What's next? Why doesn't, maybe Bill Hybel should be consistent. Why doesn't he invite the current prophet of the Mormon church? The Mormons are growing like weeds. I mean, that's a rapidly growing uh, religious organization. And the current prophet of the Mormon church, that, I mean, that's just as relevant, isn't it? Ugh. Just is so frustrating, absolutely frustrating. But then again, they don't listen to guys like me because for them, blessing equals numbers. If you don't, you ain't got numbers, you ain't being blessed. If you got numbers and you're growing, well, then God's blessing you, and that's what the leadership's all about. It's going from here to there. 
And the way you do that is not by telling people how great there is, but by letting them know how terrible here is. <sighs> Just can't make this stuff up. Okay, uh, two more stories here. Uh, school reinstates professor after, after firing him over Catholic teachings on sexuality. This is good news. With everything else that's been going wrong nowadays, it's nice to get a little bit of good news. This is by Lawrence Jones of the Christian Post. Uh, the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana will once again allow a Catholic professor to teach on the subject of Catholicism after firing him last month for explaining the Catholic Church's position on human sexual behavior to members of his class. The university confirmed with uh, with attorneys representing Dr. Kenneth Howell last week that its School of Literatures, uh, Cultures, and Linguistics would be contacting the professor to offer him the opportunity to teach Religion 127, Introduction to Catholicism on a Visiting Instructional Appointment at the school uh, for the fall 2010 semester. Dr. Howell will be appointed and paid by the university for this adjunct teaching assignment, stated a letter from the school's Office of University Council to attorneys with the Alliance Defense Fund. ADF attorneys had sent a letter to university officials on July 12th explaining that Howell's First Amendment rights were violated when they relieved the professor of his teaching duties based in part on an anonymous complaint sent via email to them. The email sent by the friend of one of Howe's students claimed to be, quote, offended. By a May 4th email, uh, uh, by a May 4th email, Howell sent to students elaborating on a class discussion concerning Catholic beliefs about sexual behavior. Notably, however, the May 4th email from Hal was addressing a lecture the day before in which he explained how the Roman Catholic Church distinguishes between same-sex attraction and homosexual conduct. In his explanation, Hal said the church bodies uh, the church bodies taught homosexual conduct as morally wrong, framing the issue in the context of natural moral law. A university cannot censor professors' speech, including classroom speech, related to the topic of the class, merely because certain ideas offend an anonymous student, commented ADF senior counsel David French. We greatly appreciate the university's move to put Professor Howell back in the classroom, but we will be watching carefully to make sure that his academic freedom is protected through the university's ongoing process. While the university stated in its letter that it would rehire Hal, it did not admit any wrongdoing on its part. Furthermore, the letter said a university committee would continue to investigate an investigation of Hal's situation. Hal had been teaching at the university since 2001. Yes, that's right. The worst thing that you can do nowadays would be to offend somebody. You, you don't want to do that because if you offend somebody... <clears throat> Your career is over. It's doomed. <clears throat> yeah, you don't want to hurt somebody's self-esteem. A good night. And the way you do that, by the way, the way you hurt somebody's self-esteem is a, or offend them, just say anything in regards to what God says about sin, especially homosexual sin or feminism or anything like that, and you'll be sure to suffer the wrath of the secular humanists. Okay, part three of Ed Stetzer's uh, Calling for Contextualization has been posted, and uh, I'm going to read from it. And why am I doing this? Okay, uh, I, I revisit this topic every time uh, Ed Stetzer writes on it. And the reason why is because I'm absolutely convinced that Ed Stetzer's waking, making this way, way harder than it really is. And Ed Stetzer is very influential 
in the seeker-driven and purpose-driven movements. And he's also influential in the Acts 29 uh, church planning network. So his ideas, um, well, let's just put it this way, is, is, is that they, uh, they, he has street creds and uh, his ideas have impact. The thing is, is that I think the impact his ideas are making are not good. Why? Because he's, he's completely overthunk this thing. <clears throat> we, well, let me read. Stetzer writes, it says, In all of the discussion and debate revolving around the issue of contextualization, most will agree that knowing the truth of the gospel is not enough but that we are called by God to also make it known to make disciples. Uh, What? Knowing the truth of the gospel is not enough, but that we are called to make disciples. Um, I'm not sure I agree with uh, the way he's parsing uh, disciples here. As the Apostle Paul wrote, how can they call on him whom they have not believed? How can they believe without hearing him, and how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Romans ten fourteen. Yeah, but see, these these are preachers called to proclaim the gospel, to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, to publicly read God's word. So isn't that all about knowing the truth of the gospel? Hello? Again, Stetzer, uh, over and over again, just in my opinion, just makes things so much more complicated than they really are. I mean, this is bureaucracy, not theology. The desire for contextualization is often driven by a hope for clear gospel communication. I've touched on this a bit in part one and part two, both of which we've covered here at Fighting for the Faith. However, agreement on our calling to make the gospel known to make disciples will only help us to see the need for contextualization if we define it properly. Oh, okay, yeah, the problem is is that the last time you defined something, Ed, it was clear as mud. The last time I read an article of yours where you def- where you were defining terms, the word was missional, and you said of the of the word missional that you would never define it in such a way that you would say to somebody that they're using the word wrong. So, in other words, the word has no real meaning at all. <clears throat> Let me continue. Contextualization is not so easy to de- to to define. Because people use the word differently in different situas, in different traditions and situations. Yet, as I did when defining culture, I think it's important to consider how evangelicals define and use a term if we are to have any meaningful conversation in the evangelical community. Thus, we look again at, to the Evangelical Dictionary of World Missions, where <clears throat> Gillian explains that contextualization is a tool to, quote, enable insofar as it is humanly possible an understanding of what it means that Jesus Christ, the Word, is authentically experienced in each and every human situation. Well, that just cleared nothing up. What? Let me read this definition again. Folks, these are words that have no meaning. I'm telling you, this whole missional contextualization thing, this is the emperor without clothes. That's the go. If you're not familiar with the uh, you know the the Aesop's fable, the story of of the emperor having no clothes. You know these these two guys come to the you know the emperor of his kingdom and you know tell him that they have this incredibly fine thread that you know is that nobody else has this and you know and so the king orders up an entire set of clothes made of this invisible thread and. He's and after it's made, he decides he's going to go and parade around in his brand new clothes. He's he was stark naked. Okay, this is exactly this. 
Okay? <clears throat> Listen to this. <clears throat> In defining the term contextualization, Ed Stetzer says that Gillian, in his Dictionary of World Missions, has a, has a definition that we should consider. And contextualization is a tool to enable, insofar as it is humanly possible, an understanding of what it means that Jesus Christ, the Word, is authentically experienced in each and every human situation. That sentence doesn't mean anything. Jesus doesn't call us to go and make it so that people can understand how to have an authentic experience of him. That's ridiculous. Jesus called us to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. He didn't say anything about authentic experiences. I don't even know what one of those are. So this definition is already... a. a, a defining contextualization in this way, as far as I'm concerned, throws it out automatically because it's not even biblical. We continue. There are other variants of that view that I will not try to address each one. For that, I suggest reading Contextualization, Meanings, Methods, and Models by David Hesselgrave and Edward Rahman, and it should tell us something that whole books would be written on the subject. Thus, all definitions of contextualization address communication. Right. Gillian says elsewhere, contextualization is, first of all, concerned with communicating by appropriate and understandable means the salvation that salvation is in Jesus only. <clears throat> okay. Um, did you notice that in this second definition that contextualization is concerned with communicating an appropriate and understandable means that salvation is in Jesus only? That he used words to do that, and he used the words that salvation is in Jesus only. Um, there was no need to contextualize. You just speak the language of the people who are hearing you. And when the the subject of, what is it? What do you mean by salvation? Salvation from what? You give him the biblical answer. Salvation from the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God, which will occur on the last day. Oh, okay. Well, what's a sin? Ah, glad you asked. A sin is when you transgress God's law. You do something wrong. We can talk about the law written in your heart. We can also talk about the law of God in the, in the Scriptures, the Ten Commandments. Oh, okay. Yeah, I get it. Folks, uh, this is ridiculous. This whole contextualization thing is smoke and mirrors and the emperor has no clothes. We continue. Though communication is not all that contextualization includes, as subsequent installments we'll discuss, it is a central part of the concern. Yes, yes, yes. So what is contextualization? Well, most generally, to contextualize is to place something in a particular context. Thus, I would say that any definition of contextualization must include presenting the unchanging truths of the gospel within the unique and changing context of cultures and worldviews. Um, the unchanging truths of the gospel were written in understandable words that all they need to be do is translated and proclaimed in the language of whatever person is hearing you. Okay, <clears throat> let me give you an example. Day of Pentecost, okay? 
It's the day of Pentecost. Jesus has risen from the grave and has ascended into heaven and tells his disciples to hang out in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit appears, right? And that they are they are given power, right? So they're hanging out in Jerusalem not knowing what to expect. And on the day of Pentecost, one fine morning there uh, in, in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit descends and looks like you know tongues of fire descends on each of the, the of the different uh, uh, followers of Jesus, the apostles and the and and the other Christians that were there. There was not very many of them at the time, and they begin to speak in other languages. Okay, so what happens? They go outside and begin to proclaim the wonders of God in all of the different languages of the people who were represented there in Jerusalem. And there were people from all over the known world at that time. Multiple cultures and subcultures were represented. And the only thing that was needed was that they heard the gospel in their own language. Jesus and the Holy Spirit did not give them the gift of contextualization. They received the gift of miraculously speaking in other languages. <clears throat> Again, these guys are making it way too complicated. Why? Well, one of the things I've noticed is that when people resort to overcomplicating things, though usually, usually the whole purpose of the overcomplication is to it's subterfuge. Okay? Subterfuge is used in order to basically mask stuff that people would reject outright if you just presented it to them plainly. Okay? So here we've got, well, we've got to contextualize. We've got to, uh, you know, that means we have to take the unchanging truths of the gospel and put them in a context, in a subcontext and that people will kind of, that they can understand in their, in their particular cultural context. And so we've got to figure out how to reach out to people who like, uh, ben and Jerry's ice cream. We've got to reach out to people who are who are into Van Halen and and 80s rock and roll music, and and we've got to figure out how to reach out to people who uh, who liked Nirvana and uh, and and are currently into rap and hip hop because those because we got to we got to be able to represent Jesus. You know, you, you got to represent it, it to all these different cultures, and you're not we're gonna, we're not going to change the message. We're just going to contextualize it so that for and quit it. Basically, this is just subterfuge designed to come up with a way of justifying unjust, biblically unjustifiable methods when it comes to outreach and evangelism, a.k.a. the seeker-driven and purpose-driven methodologies. We continue. <clears throat> okay. Let's see here. All right. So I would say that any definition of contextualization must include presenting the unchanging truths of the gospel within a unique and changing context of cultures and worldviews. This requires, requires us to retain the nature of truth and integrity of the message while explaining and applying such things in the necessary, unique, or specific ways that enable hearers to understand and respond. You know, see, that's the other part of it, um, Ed. Um, our contextualization does not enable people to hear and understand and respond to the gospel. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. God's word is clear on this. It's not our work that enables people to hear and understand. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who opens people's hearts and minds so that they can receive and believe the good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins, not 
contextualization. This sentence, I think, just completely blows this thing out of the water. Okay? If, if you're defining contextualization as the things that I need to necessarily do in order to enable hearers to understand and respond, your, your tr- contextualization has basically impinged on the turf that belongs to God, the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Stetzer continues. He says, maybe Pictionary will help uh, me make this point. Most of us are familiar with the classic party game Pictionary. The artist gets a name of a person, place, or thing, and he has to draw the picture so that his team can guess it without ever using any words to help. Imagine if I was playing a game of Pictionary at a party, and I'm assigned to draw the person... President George W. Bush, in efforts to simplify uh, of simplicity and speed, I draw a picture of a bush. I'm playing with a pretty quick crowd, so they guess it right away. Bush! Uh, they've partially got the answer, but not all of it, so it doesn't count. So I start pointing at the bush and making hand gestures, moans, grunts, but no words. And I use my hands to say, that's right, no more again. The crowd is smart, so they see the clue has something to do with a bush, so they start guessing. Tree, plant, green... Photosynthesis, oxygen, carbon dioxide, Krebs cycle. I told you they were smart. Now they're getting way off base, and I can't say anything, so I just keep pointing at the bush. I point at it harder and harder and keep gesturing and grunting. At this point, I'm getting mad. Not that any of this has ever happened to me. Yeah, I always win at Pictionary, hands down, because I'm just so artistic. (coughs) Not really. Okay, the others uh, never get it. I know what it is. They... And they should know it. It's so obvious, but they don't. So I get frustrated. And yet, I never gave another clue. Too often, I think this is what many evangelicals look like in the 21st century. For example, many today in American culture want to talk about spirituality but are unfamiliar with the gospel and not warm to the idea of spiritual absolutes. Some well-meaning Christians hear the spirituality talk and want to move people to the gospel. But the unexplained theological language and the old evangelistic approaches that were targeting a different worldview among amount to noise that leaves the hearer in the dark trying to guess. It's like we as believers start communicating through our gestures and grunts, but they don't get it. We wind up giving clues that lead them in circles and not to the truth. We know the answer. We want them to know the answer, but we just can't make a solid connection. Without contextualization, the words and the arguments we use can can amount to ineffective clues. Ed, again, I make I stand by my point. You are absolutely infringing on the territory of God, the Holy Spirit. We are called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's what Jesus told us to do, okay? And that doesn't require us to give hints or anything of the sort. And even if the culture changes, people understand language like you have transgressed God's law. God is going to judge you and send your carcass to hell for eternity because that's what you deserved. Everybody understands the courtroom. Therefore, Christ calls you to repent and be forgiven for your sins because his death on the cross propitiated God's wrath and atoned for our sins. No contextualization needed. And the telling of that story... God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who gives them repentance and faith, opens their eyes so they can see and understand and respond in faith. It's not our contextualization that does that. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who does that. 
You know, a, a story comes to mind. Um, let me um, book an axe. Hang on a second here. I got to look this up. Um, uh, purple. Yeah. Hang on a second here. I I don't remember the exact uh, location in my Bible, but uh, purple is mentioned in the story here. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. I want you to pay attention to this. Okay. Okay, um, uh, Phygria, Galatia, instead of Troas. Okay, here we go. Okay, Acts chapter 16, verse 11. Okay, this is Paul's on one of his missionary journeys, and he's heading to Philippi. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, who was a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Let me read that verse again, okay? The Lord, that's God, opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is only one example. I can provide more. And there are passages like this over and over again. Jesus himself, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, we're not born of a human decision, but we're born of God. God, through the preaching of the gospel, raises people from the dead, opens their hearts so that they can hear and understand and gives them faith. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God that no one may boast. What is the gift of God? Grace and faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 10:17 says so what Ed Stetzer in his contextualization assumptions and in these articles basically uh, what comes out he's a pelagian or at least a semi-pelagian and that's the problem it he believes but that by contextualizing things that people can get the clues and put it all together and then respond no you preach the gospel clearly in the language of the person hearing and God the Holy Spirit opens their heart so that they can respond in faith. That's God's work, not ours. What Stetzer is doing here is basically contextualization is all just subterfuge language designed to create a smokescreen so that people can bring in methods that are compatible with semi-Pelagian or semi-Pelagianism or Pelagianism, both of which are heresies and deny God's work and salvation as monergistic. That's the problem with this contextualization stuff. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, brainsy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith. Here on a lovely Friday summer afternoon. Uh, just dive right into it. Here is our sermon review music. 
The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon is part three of a four-part series entitled Domination from Church by the Glades, a seeker-driven, purpose-driven church down there in Coral Springs, Florida. Pastor David Hughes presiding. Now, supposedly, this is a, well, a sermon series about the book of Joshua. And as we've been going through it, what we've discovered is, is that nothing could be further from the truth. Today's sermon in the series is entitled, Almost. Now, if you remember, we've been listening to David Hughes talk about, well, do you not have the big mo in your life, the big momentum? As if the Bible and God even offers people such a thing. <sighs> and uh, he's promised that there are four things that you need to be doing, and that once you be doing those things, that God will see that you're serious and bless you with divine momentum. I wish I was making that up. Unfortunately, that's literally what he has been preaching in his uh, sermons. So let's uh, kill the music and then let's listen in on this last of the ones that we're going to be reviewing. We won't be doing four. I think three is enough. But I wanted to show you what's going on here in sermon series at seeker-driven and purpose-driven churches that, well, supposedly are about a book of the Bible. <clears throat> Let's kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is uh, David Hughes and uh, Almost from his uh, third in a four-part series called Domination. Welcome to another creative and encouraging teaching by Pastor David Hughes, lead pastor at Church by the Glades. For more information on Church by the Glades, including directions and service times, please visit us at www.cbglades.com. What's up, Church by the Glades? Good to see you. If you're a guest, we're thrilled you're here. I'm David Hughes, one of the pastors. We're in a series of talks called Domination. It's a study of the book of Joshua. If you'll turn in your Bible to the book of Joshua, chapter 7. Say it with me. Joshua, chapter 7. And Joshua is a transformational book. The people of God, prior to the time of Joshua, have been stuck they were slaves for over 400 years. They were wandering the wilderness for four decades. They were stuck, stuck, stuck. Then we meet people all the time in life who get a little stuck. They get stuck relationally or habitually or spiritually or professionally. People get stuck financially. But God does not want you stuck. That God wants to get you very unstuck. He wants to bless your life with divine momentum. Okay, got to challenge that. Okay, if you have your Bibles, um, open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And uh, I'm going to be reading an important, uh, well, story that Jesus tells. Okay? All right. So here we go. We're going to look at um, verse 19. We're going to listen to Jesus' teaching here. All right, <clears throat> so what we're doing is is that uh, Pastor David Hughes has basically said that God wants to get you unstuck and he wants to bless you with divine momentum. And, you know, this is really what Christianity is all about. You know, 
Isn't it, isn't it just wonderful that there's a God up in heaven who wants to get you unstuck financially, who wants to get you unstuck relationally, who wants you to who wants to bless you with divine momentum? <clears throat> I read. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. Now I'm going to stop here. Um, based upon what we're hearing David Hughes say, uh, let me back up the tape here. Um, just answer the question, which of these two, the rich man or Lazarus, uh, was experiencing divine momentum? You know, let's uh, back this up and let's just listen to what he's claiming. People all the time in life who get a little stuck, they get stuck relationally or habitually or spiritually or professionally. People get stuck financially, but God does not want you stuck. That God wants to get you very unstuck. He wants to bless your life with divine momentum. Okay, so that's the claim. God wants to get you unstuck, and he wants to bless your life with divine momentum. So I read, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. If what David Hughes is saying is absolutely true, then then what sh should follow here in the story is that the rich man is the one who was blessed by God and experiencing divine momentum while Lazarus was apparently stuck and what wasn't doing what was necessary to experience divine blessing and God's divine momentum okay we continue so at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus Lazarus who was covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, or Hades, he was being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Whoa, wait a second here. Jesus told a parable where a poor beggar who was covered with sores and who was starving and longed to have the crumbs uh, that were on the ta falling from the table of the rich man in whose house he was outside of begging uh, for a living. Um, he went, he was saved? You mean he actually goes to heaven while the rich man who was experiencing momentum in his life went to hell? Yeah, precisely. Because the Bible doesn't offer you or me divine momentum in this lifetime. Not if it's defined as prosperity. Not if it's de defined as you doing well financially, you doing well in your career, you doing well in your relationships, you doing well in whatever name the suburban uh, compartments, compartments of your life. Here in this story, the guy who had from, well, from visual appearances from outward appearances had all the momentum going in his life he had momentum financially i mean he was well to do he goes to hell 
while the guy with no momentum, none, no outward blessing that you could tell God was had blessed him with, he's the one who goes to heaven. Why? Because he had saving faith. Let me continue the story. <clears throat> Rich man died and was buried in and in hell he was being in torment, and he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, now, this is kind of an ironic statement because Abraham, if, you, if you've if you read your Bible, is a was a very wealthy man uh, while he lived here, okay? So the, the issue is not, you know, if the poor go to heaven, that's not what's going on here, and the rich go to hell, that's not it either. It's a matter of repentance and the forgiveness of sins and faith. That's what's, what counts. Okay, so Abraham said, child, remember, you you in your lifetime, you received your good things. Lazarus, in like manner, well, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, there there is between us and you a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, well, then I beg you, Father Abraham, send to my father's house for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They will repent. And he said, well, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Hmm. No divine momentum there um, for uh, <clears throat> Lazarus while he was alive on earth, but blessings and comfort and momentum in the afterlife. Yeah. You see, uh, David Hughes here sounds like uh, he's uh, pulling a fast one. He's doing a Joel Osteen. Let me back this up. Here we go again. People all the time in life who get a little stuck. They get stuck relationally or habitually or spiritually or professionally. People get stuck financially. But God does not want you stuck. In fact, God wants to get you very unstuck. He wants to bless your life with divine momentum. John Maxwell calls it the law of the big mo. I mean, momentum is vital to gaining forward progress and succeeding and achieving worthy goals. In the book of Joshua, that happens. The people take possession of the long-awaited promised land. They live the dream. And so we're talking to people who are stuck, and some of you guys have been severely stuck. But today I want to talk to people who are just sort of stuck. This topic applies to you to a degree, because you wouldn't appraise yourself as someone who's just all the way stuck, but... Maybe you're not having and experiencing everything you think that perhaps God has for you. You're not living in the sweet spot of God's success. You're not knowing the fullness of his blessing or the fullness of his momentum. You're not. A quick question for David Hughes. Um, if somebody is um, a slave and they trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, are they really a Christian or not? 
I mean, think about this. I mean, can somebody be enslaved by another human being and still be a Christian? I mean, slaves, I mean, they don't even own themselves in, you know, in the economy of things. Now, I'm not advocating slavery. However, that's a historical reality and reality for some even today. Okay? So the question is, is that if you are, if you claim to be a Christian and you're enslaved by somebody else, are you a Christian? I mean, slaves have no divine momentum whatsoever. They are told what to do, when to do it. They don't own themselves. Yet scripture says, slaves are to be submissive to their masters. In everything, they are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. Titus chapter 2, verse 9. Let all who, um, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, let all who are under a yoke, uh, yoke as slaves regard their own man, masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the, teach, and the teaching may not be reviled. Huh. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You see, the Bible gives instructions to people who are enslaved because Christianity isn't for the rich, it's not for the wealthy, it's not for the poor. It's for all human beings, regardless of your station in life. Rich or poor, slave or free, Greek or Jew, it doesn't matter. The message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name is offered to all human beings. Regardless of social status, economic outcome, whether they are in debt up to their eyeballs or have... Uh, the wealth of Midas socked away in a bank somewhere. So Christianity offers repentance and the forgiveness of sins even to slaves. Now, in in um, uh, David Hughes's way of thinking, uh, somebody who is enslaved and claims to be a Christian, well, they must be, uh, well, not experiencing divine blessing and momentum. At all. Maybe they're doing something wrong. Maybe it's because of their own wickedness. You know, this kind of preaching would not encourage somebody who is a slave to obey their master so that the name of the Lord would be honored. Instead, it would basically teach this person falsely that they have a divine right for divine momentum in their life. And uh, really, this is a formula for insubordination when it comes to their masters. Yeah, I, again, I'm not advocating slavery. What I'm pointing out here is is that this theology that he claims he got from John Maxwell, not the Bible, isn't compatible with biblical Christianity, and it's not the biblical gospel. And God's word does not promise in this lifetime that you will have divine momentum. Some might. Others may not. And e- both of them are equally saved by the shed blood of Christ that propitiates God's wrath and atones for their sins. 
That's not what he's preaching here, though. And by the way, if you want divine momentum, you better get busy because there's four things you've got to do to prove to God that you're serious about you know, wanting his blessing so that then he can then bless you. See, this isn't this isn't uh, momentum by grace. This is momentum by works. Let's continue. Stuck in every area of life, but you don't have the big mo. I call you an almost person. You're almost living in the promised land. You're almost living the dream. You almost have the big mo. Now, what I want to see happen in your life today, well, it's kind of like if you're ever hungry on a Saturday afternoon and you live in Coral Springs area, do not go, do not go to the fresh market. Now, the fresh market up on Wiles and University Road, don't, don't go there. Don't go there if you're hungry because they're smart people. And on Saturday afternoon, they have a bunch of their staff strategically positioned all over the restaurant. And they have little hot plates and George Foreman grills. And they're cooking up samples. Oh, and if you go in there and you're hungry, you, you, the, the, you open the door and those aromas just hit you. All these great, beautiful smells. And here's a guy, he's cooking up some filet mignon over here. And he's buying some teriyaki chicken over here. And someone with some spicy sausage. And they'll be, would you like a sample? Would you like a sample? And I had no intention of buying spicy sausage. But just a little sample. You know, taste that and, and you know, kind of whet your appetite. It, it arouses a hunger that you know you had. And you got to be careful. If you go to Fresh Market when they're doing the sample stuff on Saturday afternoon, you'll, you'll spend $5,000 on your groceries before you leave. What is my goal today? I want to be God's sample boy for you. If you're here and you're an almost person, you're almost, you're a saved person, you're a Christian person, you're a church-going person, but you're not. Did you hear the but? Listen again. One of the things I, I point out from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith is that you got to be careful with your language many times, not always, but oftentimes when somebody uses the word but, it's like a verbal eraser. It erases the things that were said just before it, okay? And I've already asked the question because you can tell where this theology is going. You know, does he consider somebody who is a slave to be a Christian, Okay. Now, listen to where the butt is in, in this little run-up that uh, he's uh, giving here. Here we go. My goal today, I want to be God's sample boy for you. If you're here and you're an almost person, you're almost, you're a saved person, you're a Christian person, you're a church-going person. But? But you're not living the dream. You're not- so you're a saved person. You're a Christian person. You're a church-going person. You see, that's not enough. Yeah, yeah, you know, here you thought, you know, trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and loving and serving your neighbor in vocation and showing up to church and hearing God's word and, you know, you know living out the Christian life and daily repentance and living under the cross, that's really what it was all about? Well, you fool. Don't you understand that you can have the big life? You can experience divine momentum? I mean, you're not experiencing the blessing? Oh, man, talk about a worthless Christianity you have. That's really the subtext of what he's saying here. Back it up again, just listen, and we'll continue on. Here we go. 
almost person. You're almost, you're a saved person, you're a Christian person, you're a church-going person, but you're not living the dream. You're not living in the promised land. You're almost in the promised land. You're almost, have, you almost have the big mo, but you don't really, I want to give you. Is the promised land something that's offered here? You know, like Joel Osteen's talking about your best life now. Where is that promised in clear in uncertain terms in Scripture. It's not. The promised land for Christians is the new heaven and new earth. This side of the new heaven and new earth, what Christ promises you is persecution. Give you a sample of God's best. I want to arouse in you a holy hunger, an appetite that your life would be everything God wants your life to be. The book of Joshua is about that. God wants to favor you. God wants to bless you. God wants to dispense to you divine momentum. The God wants to do all these things. Isn't that great? I mean, wow. God wants to be your big cosmic genie in the sky. Uh, what do I have to do then? If, if God wants to be my genie, why doesn't he just do it? Is there something? Oh, I see. It's it, This is momentum by works. Big Mo. Now, the last few weeks I've been telling you there are four things. If you bring four things, issues of attitude and understanding and action, you bring these things to the table, God will leverage these to bless you with divine momentum. He'll get you very unstuck in life. What are the four things? I covered two last week. I'll review those quickly. I said, number one, the first of the four things is hope. You got to bring your hope. I hope against hope. You brought your hope today. It all begins with hope. Hope is a big deal biblically. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says here the top three things, faith, hope, and love. And these are tough times out there right now. A lot of folks are very discouraged right now. And if that's you, if you're a little hopeless in life, God says he wants to dispense hope. In Jeremiah 29, 11, he say he's completely mangling 29, 11 again. Listen to yesterday's edition of Fighting for the Faith for a full-blown explanation as to why this is wrong. If you don't want to do that right now, just go read it in context. Go to Jeremiah chapter 29 and begin at verse 1. And don't stop at 11. Keep reading a few more verses, maybe four or five verses after verse 11, and answer this simple question. Who is God promising the promises that are given an 11 to? Are they given as a general promise to everybody everywhere? Or that were those promises given to a very specific group of people that are named in the text for a, at a particular time for particular reasons? Read the text and determine that for yourself. He says he wants to give you hope and a future. Turn to your neighbor and say, I hope you brought your hope today. Turn to your neighbor right now and say, I hope you brought your hope. Because you didn't bring your hope. You got no hope. You, you got no hope. I hope you brought your hope. Hope is the first thing. If you got no hope, I can't work with you. Got to bring a degree. So God can't work with you unless you, you got your hope and you brought it with you. This is blasphemy. I've said it already. I'll say it again. This is utter blasphemy. What he is saying, God has not said. Degree of hope. God wants us to have hope. God-centric hope. Got to have hope. And then I mentioned number two was something I called divine Direction, divine direction. And the idea is here that God has a supernatural script for your life. God has a plan for your life.
And the great news is, is that you're in the starring role. And Jesus will make cameo appearances at time, you know, just to make sure that you, you know, that you, you have the appearance that you're living a Christian life. But the good news is God has a divine script and you are in the lead role and everybody's going to be looking at you and applauding and going, oh, wow, way to go. Way to go, you. Uh-huh. Again, Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, God says, uh, I know the plans I have for you. And God wants to prosper you and advance you, it says in that passage. He wants to give you hope in the future. So God has plans for you. And here's the great thing about God. He customizes. He's not a one-size-fits-all kind of God. His plan for your life is unique. The plan he has for you is different than the person he has next to you. I mean, God has this amazing plan. The biblical word for this divine direction or this plan is vision. God has a vision for your life. In fact, say that with me and personalize it. Say, God has a vision for my life. Ready? God has a vision for my life. God has a uh, divine destiny for my life. It gets... The scriptures don't say this. It's very exciting when I begin to discover and pursue God's vision for my life. We talked about how you find vision last week, God's divine direction. So here are the first two of the four. Hope, divine direction, receiving that word from God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. It begins with Scripture. It's also an issue of divine wisdom. All right, what is the third thing? The third thing, get ready to write down. Here's the third thing. If you want God to grace you with momentum, the third thing is not just receiving His Word or His vision or divine direction. You must listen to, the, the, listen to what he's just said. If you want God to grace you with momentum, grace is unmerited favor. So saying, if you want God to grace you with something, X, Y, or Z, then immediately turning around and saying that you have to do something in order to get that thing, God isn't gracing you with it. You're earning it as a wage. Obey. Obedience is the third idea. Not just enough to know what God wants. I got to dare to do what God would have me to do. There's power in obedience. We're going to be in Joshua chapter. Oh, great. There's power in obedience. How are you doing, David? I mean, if I were to whip out the Ten Commandments and, you know, just kind of walk through them, uh, how how would you be doing? Um, You know, let's see here. I, I, I Somewhere in here, I've got my copy of the uh, small catechism. We can walk through these together. First commandment, you shall have no other gods. Now, what does that mean? It means that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. If if you're not doing that, any moment of any day that you're not doing that, well, then you're breaking the first commandment. This is the commandment that tells us to not have any other idols, to not trust in anything above God, to not worship or serve anything above God. So, I mean, if you want to obey, I mean, this, I mean, how are you doing on that? I mean, because if you want God to bless you based upon obedience, then you have to keep it perfectly. <clears throat> Second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God in vain. Or mis- you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Um, yeah, what does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts lie or deceive by God's name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. Well, the second commandment, David Hughes is breaking this left, right, and center uh, in each of the three sermons that we've reviewed in the sermon series because he's he is lying about God, saying things about God and his word that are not in the word at all. 
Not when you read them in context. Third commandment, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. We should fear and love God so we do not despise preaching in God's word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so we don't despise or anger our parents or other authorities, but honor them, serve them, and obey them, love and cherish them. The fifth commandment, you shall not murder. What does this mean? That we should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body? But instead, help and support him in every physical need. How are you all doing on that? Sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and what we do. And husband and wife love and honor each other. And keep in mind that, you know, Christ himself in talking about uh, adultery, it didn't just limit it to the deed itself but to having lustful thoughts and intentions towards uh, somebody who isn't your spouse. That's uh, committing adultery. Uh, Seventh commandment, you shall not steal. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so we do not take our neighbor's money or his possessions or get them in any dishonest way, but help our neighbor to improve and protect his possessions as well as his income. Eighth commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. That means that we should fear and love God so that we do not uh, tell lies about our neighbor, betray him or slander him or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, explain everything in the kindest way. Ninth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. What does this mean? It means that we should fear and love God so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or his house or to get in any way which only appears right, but help our neighbor and be of service to him in keeping it. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, what does this mean? That we should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife or workers or animals or turn them against him, but urge them to stay and do their duty. So, I mean, so here, uh, you know, God wants to, according to David Hughes, you know, uh, bless you with divine momentum. but. You know, God's not going to do it unless you obey. Folks, obedience in the sight of God is not graded on a curve. You either obey or you don't. It's 100% or zero. You either are doing it or you fail. If you are not doing it, you are not perfectly obeying God's law. And truly loving God with all of your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself and serving your neighbor from the from perfect and pure intentions, you are not obeying God. Not David Hughes, not nobody, not know-how. By the way, none of us does this. So what I've been saying that this is this is divine momentum via works not grace is absolutely correct what david hughes is saying here not only is it a lie it's a damned heresy why this is this is the galatian heresy he's mixing works and grace God wants to grace you with divine momentum, but you have to obey. Otherwise, he won't grace you with it. Well, then it's not grace then, is it? 
chapter 7, Joshua chapter 7, but I want to start back in Joshua chapter 1, remind you, way back in, in the commissioning passage for Joshua, what God said to him. Look at verse 7, chapter 1. Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey. You obey. You obey the law of Moses, the whole thing, man. Don't turn to the right, turn to the left. And if you do this, you may be successful, have momentum wherever you go. So it's not just enough, I know what God's plan is for my life. I must obey. I got, got to obey. There's power in obedience, man. I, I hope I'm someone who obeys God. If I do that, um, obedience unlocks the blessing and favor and momentum of God. Remember the story about... Now, he's right. Obedience does unlock the favor and blessing of God. The problem is, is that you and I are not obedient. So then how on earth can we unlock God's favor and blessing? I can name somebody whose perfect obedience is given to us as a gift. His name is Jesus Christ. This is why the imputed righteousness of Christ is so important. But he's not talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ, that we are counted worthy and blessed of God for the sake of what Christ has done. No, he's talking about your bare, stark, naked obedience. And he said, I hope I obey. That should tell you something. Even he, even David Hughes knows that when he's honest about how his life measures up against what God demands him to do, he doesn't even come close. He doesn't obey. Solomon in the Old Testament, Solomon, when he was a young man, he was, he was a brand new king, and no doubt he was very intimidated because why? He followed a very successful king, his daddy David. Kind of, kind of like Joshua here. He's following a spiritual superstar. Joshua had to follow Moses. That would be intimidating. Here's here's. Poor Solomon, this young man, stepping into the large sandals of his father and, and probably being nervous in prayer one day. saying, God, I'm not sure if I, I'm wired for this. I'm not sure if I'm cut out for this whole king thing. And God came to Solomon and says, Solomon, because I know your heart, you ask for any one thing, any one thing, and I will give it to you. Ask anything you want. What would you ask for? Don't answer out loud because some of you guys will say the wrong thing. Winning lottery numbers. What would you ask for? What would you ask for? I don't know what you would ask for, but I know what Solomon asked for. Solomon asked for what commodity? Asked for wisdom. It's a great thing to ask for. God, give me wisdom. Give me the uh, spiritual smarts and, and uh, you know, divine IQ to uh, judge and discern rightly. Help me be a good king. Wisdom, that's a great thing to ask for. I think wisdom is a great thing. If God said that to you, you know, said that to you. Wisdom is the second best thing you could ask for. But if God came to me and said, David, anything you want, you know, David, you ask for anything and I'll give it to you. I would not ask for wisdom. Why? I'm a New Testament Christian. James chapter 1 already promises if I ask in faith, God will give me wisdom. I wouldn't ask for wisdom. Remember Solomon sometimes, he knew the right thing to do. He's very wise. He just didn't do it. I would ask for a heart to obey. I would say, God, I, mean, I, I want to keep learning of your word. I want to learn about your direction. But please give me the courage and the intelligence and the resolve to obey you, to do what you want me to do. Because obedience unlocks the blessing of God. So where in the Bible does it say that obedience unlocks the blessing of God? I mean, the way he's describing it. Well, I guess it does in the sense that the, the law promises that if you keep it perfectly, then you will be blessed. Good luck. Let me know how that works out for you. Obey God's word. How about that? There you go. Obey God's word. And to get nothing else today, you're good, man. Your life will be rich if you just, just do that. Problem is, it's hard to do that, isn't it? It's hard to do that. Because some of you guys are struggling with temptation or sin right now. In fact, I was thinking... 
if you're breathing, you're struggling with sin. Think about the folks I'll be talking to this weekend. And, and, and a few of you, you're, you're dealing with something big. You got a big temptation in front of you. A few of you, you got this big, massive temptation. This really bad thing, this big bad thing tempting you. I mean, you're you're right now contemplating your decision: Do I join the mafia or not? Do I become a global terrorist or not? Do I become a, a dealer of crack cocaine? I don't know. You know, he's not dealing with sin correctly. As a result of it, people are not being told of their sinfulness in a way that makes them realize they are not keeping God's law and that they need to be forgiven, and that the only solution is Christ's shed blood. No, we're, we're, he's kind of making light on the whole law thing. He has to, because, well, he's teaching stark naked obedience, so we have to find a way to dilute the law, make it easy, and you know, you know, don't treat it as such a big thing, so make it appear as if you're somehow pulling it off. I don't know if I should do it, but, but a lot of you, especially Christian people, you're dealing with temptation, and as you would appraise your life, you would say, it's not a big thing, it's a, this thing I'm wrestling with, it's not a really big bad thing. You would say it this way, it's just, it's, just, it's, just, it's just a little bit of sin. It's just a little bit of sin, it's just a little something, it's just a little sin in my life, a little something, a little sin in my life. I've got this little bit of sin in my life, this, this, this thing. And I, uh, Let me take you back, let me take you back to Joshua 1, verse 7. Can I go back to Joshua 1, verse 7? Because you got this little issue of sin in your life. Is this one little thing? This is just a little thing. Everything else you're doing right. Everything. Nobody has a little bit of sin problem. Everybody has a big sin problem. Things you're doing exactly what God would have you to do, man. You're, there's ten commandments and you're nailing nine of them. It's just this one little thing. One little thing. If you think that, then you don't even understand the law. Here's that verse again. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey. Darn. All? I'm careful to obey most, most, most of the law. I, 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 I'm doing all, I'm doing, I'm doing almost all. This is just absolute stark, naked works righteousness. Wow. Of the law, God, nine out of ten commandments, that's pretty good. That's, that's like a 90%, that's a high B. That's, that's good, God, right? And, uh, and this thing that you're, you're resisting God on, uh, you evaluate that thing to be a small thing. It's, it's a little thing, God. I'm giving you all these big things, man. I'm giving you all these big acts of obedience. I'm, I'm doing all these things. I'm just keeping this little thing for myself. Now, listen, I want to clarify. We all sin. We all make mistakes. I mean, I sin every single day. Okay, so then how on earth can you expect to get God's uh, big mo? You said obedience is the thing that we have to have. But I'm talking about an area of your life that God has identified as his own. He's saying, you give me that relationship. Uh, an er no, I, there isn't an area of my life that God has said belongs to him. I belong to him. I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. There isn't a, a, just portions of me that belong to Christ. Every, I, I, in my entirety, belong to him. You surrender to me that habit. You give to me that priority, uh, that spiritual discipline. You, you, you do this one thing. And it's not that you just occasionally mess up. You've told God when he identified that thing in your life he desires to have. You told God, uh, no. God, you can have this and this and this and this. I'll give you all these things. I'm almost completely yours. But this little thing, this little, this little sin is my pet sin right here. You can't have this one. 
It's a single, seemingly small area of resistance. Oh, really? I mean, do you know anybody who's truly that's where they're that's where they're at right now? They are just on the cusp, the border of actually obeying God perfectly all the time, except for this one little area, this tiny little foothold of hold of sin. The sin is just barely hanging on. You know, it's like the person hanging on by fingernails off the cliff, and all you got to do is step on sin's fingers, and he'll let go, and ta-da, you're obedient now. Oh, give me a break. And, and what happens when you do that, What hap- you become an almost person. I'm almost surrendered to God. I'm almost completely available to God. I'm I'm doing all the law, almost. And what happens is you spiritually self-sabotage. And we're going to study Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7 teaches us that sometimes very small sin can have tremendously large consequences. See, Joshua chapter 6 was last week. In Joshua chapter 6, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came up. Tumbling down. Thank you. That was last week. The walls came a tumbling down. You can do better, by the way, from now on. Tumbling down. And and it was an amazingly big barrier. It was a big battle. Here's these massive walls that stood between God's people and God's promise. But God was faithful. And in chapter 6, the big barrier was broken, and there was a big battle and a big victory. Chapter 7. There's a tiny little town. It's barely a, an outpost. It's called Ai. Joshua, back in chapter 6, fights against Jericho. That's a massive town, massive. AI is so little, probably no wall. It's a tiny little, little nothing, little outpost. In fact, when Joshua looks at that, he says, why waste the whole army's time in trouble? We'll just send a few men. We'll send just like 3,000 soldiers. Go, go take them out. Go, go take AI. But in chapter 7, the people of God are soundly defeated by the small village of AI. I mean, they, they, they flee, they retreat. There's three dozen casualties in the part of the Hebrews. There's a psychological effect. The people of God tremble in fear. It just wipes them out. Why? How could this, this tiny little battle turn into such a huge defeat? Just a little sin. Sometimes just a little sin can have massive, terrible consequences. Just a, a little sin. I mean, you've seen it happen where someone... Well, you know that Adam and Eve and their disobedience, their one sin in the garden, plunged us into the entire mess that we're in right now. He makes it, oh, it makes it sound like, oh, yeah, you, you just, this doesn't make any sense. This is not coherent. This is not a coherent use of the law at this point. The law is given to condemn us. That's the purpose of the law and shows us what a good work is. It doesn't save us, nor are we blessed by it. Okay? We are... <laughs> Our blessing is as a result of Christ because every one of us sins every day. So here he's preaching against, you know, just that little bit of sin, yet he confessed that he sins every day. So which is it? Loses something really big based on what they thought was a small decision. Bro, you're divorced? You're, you're divorced? I mean, I thought you guys were so happily married. I, well, how, 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 did that, how did you lose your marriage? I thought it was no big deal. You know, I just thought it was a little harmless flirting with somebody at the office. I, I didn't know it would turn into this. You can't drive anymore. You lost your license. You're going to jail. What happened? I wasn't plastered. I, I was just a little buzzed. I had a drink or two too many. Thought I could drive. And man, yeah, I, I lost. Right? You know how that happens? And someone's going, oh, that would never happen to me. I'm smarter than that. Just This is my little tiny pet sin we're talking about. Just a, a little thing. All right, all right, bare minimum. Now, notice, uh, keep in mind, he confessed that he sins daily. 
If God calls for an area of your life and you say no, bare minimum, what happens? No big mo. God shuts off the divine momentum in your life. It ha- so if you don't obey, it, yet he sins every day, then God's going to cut off the big mo. I mean, even if it's just a little bit of sin, but he said he sins every day. Happens when God's people sin. If you don't believe me, come check out what happens in Joshua chapter 7. This is amazing stuff. Let's begin reading in verse 6. So the people of God are defeated by the tiny little village of Ai. Why? Because there's, there's a guy, there's a guy back in chapter 6 named Achan. Achan was a Hebrew soldier, and after the walls came tumbling down, and the soldiers stormed into the, you know, Jericho, God, back in chapter 6, says, guess what? All the precious things of Jericho are mine. I get what's first. God teaches it. What's first goes to God. This is the first city to be, to be defeated, the first conquest of the promised land. So all the gold and silver and precious things you bring to the tabernacle, I'm claiming these for my own. Well, here's, here's Achan, just one little soldier. And she's going through the rubble after the walls come tumbling down. He sees a beautiful garment, it says in chapter 7. Beautiful garment, man. Beautiful garment made in Babylon. It's a Versace garment made in Babylon. And he goes, you know, this is just this, this one, little, one little garment. One, in a big battle, only just one little tiny thing. I know God's declared this for his own, but what's this one little garment going to hurt? Oh, there's a few little silver coins. I'll take those too. A little bar of gold. I'll take those. I'll go hide these under my tent. I know they're God's. But I'll, keep, I'll tell my family. We'll, we'll keep the secret together. Afterwards, that's chapter 6, chapter 7, the people are defeated. People die in the battle. Joshua freaks out. Now, chapter 7, verse 6, verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down after the defeated Ai, uh, face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads as signs of grieving and distress back in this ancient day. And look, look, get ready to read. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why? Why? Why did you ever bring these people across the Georgia to deliver us into the hands of the Amorite? Why? See, see me, listen, I can tell if you're an almost person. Because after church, because I'm the sample boy every weekend, I'm the sample boy. I hand out samples. Here's what God has for you. Sample God's bless. I mean, God, God has the fine wine of his. Oh, and, and you get a little taste. And then you walk out and go, why, why didn't that work for me? It's okay. We'll just stay right here. We'll be content to stay right here, Joshua. We'll just be complacent and hang here on the wrong side of the Jordan. We can see it. It's over there. We're almost there. But we'll just be satisfied to stay here. And there's somebody that's exactly where you are. You're a saved person. You're a Christian person. You're a heaven bound. But in this everyday life, there's no power. There's no blessing. You're content to stay on the wrong side of the Jordan. Yeah, you're just an almost Christian. You're not crossed into God's best and His promise. And what's holding you back? Just my little sin. My little pet sin. My little pet sin. My little thing I'm holding back. God wants it, but I want to keep it for myself. And that little sin brings great destruction and grief in your life. And you cry to God, why? Why are you not blessing me? Why are you not taking care of me? Why are you not answering my prayers? So here's Joshua, typically very courageous, very insightful, and he's, he's crying. He's weeping. He's tearing his clothing in grief. He has dust on his head. Now, I love God's response to Joshua's prayer. Look at verse 10. This is classic. So here's Joshua all upset. Joshua being all dramatic. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Oh, you got to do that better. You got to do that better. That's, that's too strong. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Get up. I love that. Why do you lie thus on your face? God is saying today to some whiny Christian who, why, God, why am I defeated? Why am I not blessed? Why? There's no momentum. Why? God says to you, get up. 
Get uh, Why are you down on your face? Why are you laying in the dirt, Christian person? Why, chosen person, are you laying and living like that? Why are you residing on the wrong side of the Jordan? Apparently, Lazarus just wasn't obedient, yet he went to heaven. And the rich guy who had all the momentum, he uh, went to hell. Get up. Man, don't, don't complain. Why don't cry? Just get up. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need to get up right now. You need to get up. You need to get up, man. Get up. Get off your face. Don't languish in defeat. Don't weep and cry over the past. You need to get up. I love that. And God, God's all sweet and compassion and gracious there. Joshua, get up. You're spiritualizing this like I, like me. I did it. No, no, I didn't do it. You did this. Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. Here's what God says. Hey, Joshua, get up. Get out of the dirt. Get off your face. It's not my problem. It's your problem. You got sin. You got a little bit of sin in the house. You got a little bit of sin in the house. I mean, someone has violated my covenant. Someone has, has sinned against me. It seemed like a small thing, but the consequences were bad. What happened? People died. People died. I mean, 36 soldiers die. Man, victory dies. Momentum dies. Why? The wage of sin is death. You did this. Yet, um, uh, David Hughes has admitted he sins every day. His theology isn't coherent. Get up and deal with your sin. And uh, that's, that's the word for somebody. Because you live a life and there's no momentum. There's no evidence of God's favor in your life. And you kind of limp through life. And you're, you're, you're going complacent on the wrong side of the Jordan. You're going, I just guess that's all there is to life. This little mundane, mediocre existence I have right now. And it's my prayer for you. You'd be so sick and sour of that. Your spiritual life is lazy and listless. You're, you're, it's lifeless. And God is saying, get up. Let's deal with that sin. Let's, let's deal with that sin right now, once and for all. With David, how do, I, how do I deal with my sin? Great question. If you're a non-Christian person, here's what you do. I guess you try harder. If you're not a Christ follower, I don't know, go out and be more religious, be nicer, be politer, give more money to charity, help more little ladies across the street. I don't know what you do. Maybe we're going to get the cross here. If you're not a Christian person, do all that stuff, and it won't work. If you're here without Christ, your only hope of cleansing and forgiveness is Jesus. He's it. He's it. My only hope, Jesus. We can't work off our sin, fix our sin, but on the cross, Jesus took care of our sin. So if you're here and you're not a Christ follower, here's what you should do. Okay, uh, yeah, right, good. We've got, well, I guess, technically, I guess we're dealing with a gospel nugget at this point. I should probably cue up my gospel nugget sound and at least recognize the fact that we had a gospel nugget. Yay! Want to deal with your sin? You deal with it through Christ. All right, that works. Yes, good. As we wrap this thing in a few moments, sing the final song, there'll be some pastors and prayer partners here at the edge of the stage. They would love the honor of leading you to Christ by way of salvation. So here's what I would do as soon as the service is done. I wouldn't walk. I would run to the edge of the stage and say to one of those folks, hey, hook me up. I want to give my heart to Christ and have God deal with my sin today. Now, what if you're here and you are a Christian person? Yeah. Is the cross for me? I hope so. But you're saying, but David, there's no big mo in my life. There's no, there's no why. Well, I got this little pet sin. I mean, and maybe you've been a Christian for 10 years or 10 days. 
Well, if there's an area of resistance, what do you do? Well, you confess it. And then you repent. You do the 1 John 1, 9 thing over that, that sin in your life. I love 1 John 1, 9. It says, we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Y'all make me read by myself. From all unrighteousness. Good. Okay, we're getting something. After three weeks of hearing the cross completely mangled, we're hearing something coherent about the cross. Today. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so God says, I'll make it right. You confess that sin, you own that sin, and I'll forgive that sin, I'll restore you, and then you turn from that sin. House of God, deal with that sin. It's holding you back. So give that relationship, that at, whatever that thing is, you, you give that to God. You give that to God. Let me. Yet he sins every day. Ugh. Let me back up a little bit here. Let me come back to this passage because then Joshua, Joshua saying, why don't you leave us on the other side of, of the Jordan? Then chapter 7, verse 10, God says, get up, get up. He says, Israel has sinned. Guys, give me that slide, if you will. Give me Joshua 7, verse 10 and 11, if you will. And I like this as God continues to say, here's what y'all did. Here's what you did. It says, they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. The people have lied. They have put them, these sacred things, with their own possessions. And I thought, well, how many people will be here in church? It's exactly what they've done. God said that relationship should be mine. That dating relationship, you're, you're mishandling that, that, that should be mine. The way you're mishandling God's word, yeah, that, that belongs to God. And that, that business practice of yours is unethical, it's not, it's not trustworthy, it's not honest. That yeah, the, that Bible twisting that you engage in, it's unethical, it's not trustworthy, it dishonors God. should be mine. I, I looked at the language here, I thought about the tithe. They've stolen from God? That sounds like Malachi. He says, oh, if you're not tithing, then you get, you're not going to get any more, that's for sure. You are robbing me. God's be robbing me. And the people go, how are we robbing you, God? He said, you're not bringing the tithe. It's all mine, but the first 10% is holy. You bring that to the temple storehouse. You, you bring the tithe. Some of y'all have taken the tithe, and you've kind of put that with your own possessions. You're treating God's stuff like it's your stuff. So what does God do? What does God do? Does he lob lightning bolts? Does he zap you? No, look at verse 12. Verse 12, next verse, very interesting. Here's, here's what God says will happen. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run because they have been made liable to destruction. Here, here's what God says I'm going to do. Because you're keeping and, and what's mine and you're, and you're sending your little pet sin, I will not be with you anymore. God says, I'm not going to zap you with lightning bolts. I'm not going to take away your salvation. I'm just not going to help you. You try to achieve the dream on your own. You try to battle the promised land on you. You try to win it. Go ahead. Good luck. You don't want to honor me in all things. You want to be an almost person. You, you manage your own relationships. You figure out your own priorities. You deal with your own stress, your own way. You, you, you don't want to bring the tithe. That's fine. That's fine. You're free not to do that if you Pack your bags. We are going on a guilt trip. You want to. You navigate this economy on your own. You will do life without my divine momentum. See, it's so important that somebody hears this right now because exactly what you're doing, that little thing that God says is mine, you're keeping as your own. And what happens is don't... Yet he said he sins every day. Lose your salvation. Don't lose heaven. You just kind of limp through life as an almost person. And you're probably... Yeah, second-class uh, Christian, that's for sure. You, you can always tell the, the real holy uh, Christians because they're the ones who have the divine momentum. Oh, they're a little miserable. The Bible doesn't call you an almost person. It calls you lukewarm 
Revelation chapter 3, lukewarm, and here, here's the problem. So if you don't have divine momentum and blessing and all that kind of stuff, well, you're just a lukewarm Christian. Problem is why you're miserable. You got too much God to enjoy your sin. But you got too much sin to enjoy your God. And you're kind of stuck there in the middle, almost person, content on the wrong side of the Jordan. So what should you do? Confess that sin and obey God. Obey God. So there are four things. You bring your hope. You look for God's direction, his vision for your life. Then you bring your obedience, your complete obedience. What is the fourth thing? I'll write that down right now, and we're done today. The fourth thing. Before I tell you the fourth thing, and I will tell you the fourth thing today. I'm going to give you a little bonus thing, a little extra credit, no extra charge, a little bonus thing right here. So here's something else. This is not one of the four things, but this is a very important thing. Put a little asterisk because it's, it's, it's courage. So you need to bring your courage too. Courage. Because as I read through the book of Joshua, there's, there's, a, there's a fear factor in the book of Joshua. Fear factor. As you read through the book of Joshua, a lot of people are afraid. A lot of the pagan peoples are afraid. Their hearts are melting with fear. And every time you see fear in the book of Joshua, fear predates and predetermines failure. Whoever is full of fear fails in the book of Joshua, whether it's the pagan people or the people of God. Whoever's all afraid, they lose. Oh, man. So you have to be obedient and you can't have any fear. On the other hand, courage is always tied to victory. And I just want to highlight that for just a moment. You can check me out. Check out chapter 5 or chapter 2. Or I mean, you'll see the people who are against God, their, their hearts are trembling with fear. You know, Rahab said our people are, are so afraid of what you... All that happens every time. And the reason I want to highlight courage for a moment is, is some of you guys, you so want to do this. You want to bring your God-centered hope and follow God's direction. You want to obey Him and give God that sin or that relationship or that attitude. You're just, you're just frightened. You're afraid of what that will look like or feel like in your life. You're afraid that you, you can't deliver the goods. You're, you're afraid. And I just want to tell you, that fear does not come from God. In fact, fear never comes from God. He's never the origin of fear. On the other hand, the enemy loves to traffic in fear. And he will seek to leverage that fear to keep you from being everything God wants you to be. He will leverage fear to keep you out of the promised land. He'll, he'll have fear in your heart to derail God's momentum in your life. So have courage, have courage. In fact, go back and read chapter one. Four times, God says the same thing to Joshua. In verse seven, before he says obey, he says be strong and very courageous. And what God says the same thing four times, he's trying to make a point. Be courageous, have some godly guts. And someone's going, okay, David, great. Thanks for the pep talk again. But how in the heck do I do that? I mean, I've, fear is a feeling. You know, I have these emotions. They're fearful. I have anxiety. I, I don't know how to make them stop. Now, I wish I could make him stop. Please, I wish I could, because I think courage is the absence of the feeling of fear. All right? All right? Granted, if you... Again, I just... I, you know, <sighs> Rich man and Lazarus, who had the momentum on the earth and who ended up in hell? Yeah. Can't do courage. How about doing boldness? Boldness is mentioned a whole lot in the Old Testament. And early in my career, I heard a Bible scholar say, here's the difference between courage and boldness. Courage is the absence of fear. Boldness is you got the fear, but you do the right thing anyways. You have the feelings of fear, but you don't let them debilitate you and, 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 and dehumanize you. You push through that fear and you do what God wants you to do, though you have that anxiety. And I mean, that's boldness. That's boldness. I saw it demonstrated in my own family just in a very simple way a few weeks ago. My, my daughter, Victoria... Had to have a little procedure done on her hand, very simple procedure, uh, but she was really scared. 
And, and, and all your kids, you have more than one child, they're all wired differently. She's my worry ward. She's my one that tends to be a little worrisome and a little more fearful. And I think she was afraid of the physical pain, but she was very afraid of the unknown because she didn't know what all this procedure looked like. So mom and dad tried to explain it to her. And we were honest with her and we prayed with her to have courage. And, you know, fear doesn't come from God. And she quoted us the verse. And, and, and you know, when the big day came, she was so nervous and so worked up. Both mom and dad went with her. The doctor had great bedside manner. It didn't matter. She was terrified. And we're there going, what do we do? She needs to get this thing done. I mean, do we make her? I mean, what, what do we do? And that little girl, she's crying. Daddy, I'm so afraid of this. Daddy, I'm so afraid. Then finally, I said, but honey, you need to get this done. This is important. So finally, she said, fine, do it. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's not like the fear stopped. Uh, she just, she just, and by the way, most of us have a procedure. We look away. She watched. That tough little girl watched. And I was so proud of her. Because God didn't zap the fear. She pushed through the fear and did the right thing. She pushed through the fear and did the right thing. Someone that's exactly where you are. You need to give your heart to Jesus when this talk is done. And you're afraid. You're afraid. You're nervous. You need to give that sin to God, that relationship to God. Go have that hard conversation with someone. Begin to honor God in that area of resistance that he may set you free and emancipate you. And it's scaring you. Have boldness. Notice it's really up to you to set yourself free. You got to give the sin to God. And, you know, he did talk about forgiveness, but again, everything's kind of really on you here. And listen to God. Fourth thing, we're done. Fourth thing, courage is a bonus. Here's here's the last one, because some of you, I was praying about you this week, thinking I got people out there. you, you, You tried this. You're a Christian person. You tried this. You're not playing games. There was a season in your Christian life. You were so sincere. You brought your hope to God and you were looking for God's direction for your life. You're trying to live up to God's word. You're trying to obey God. You're trying to obey God and trying to have courage. And uh, if you do these things, if you do these things, if you seek God's direction, if you bring hope and, and you obey God, will God bless you with momentum? Yes. Eventually. Because there's some of you here, you, you did this for a while. And you didn't see the answered prayer. You didn't see the miracles. You didn't sense any momentum. And you just got kind of discouraged and you gave up. Not completely on God. I mean, you're here today, but you're going to be discontent to live on the wrong side of the Jordan. You're just going to be an almost person. And the last quality is time. It is time. And, and I cannot overstate how important time is. That we add what the Bible says is perseverance to our faith. I mean, time is so big. If you want to transition from an almost person... Cue sappy me. I mean, gosh, I mean, this is terrible. I mean, are you an almost person? Yeah, you just don't have enough courage and obedience and hope and uh, whatever and vision in your life. Yet the Bible never doesn't teach these four steps as the things that you've got to do in order to receive divine momentum. Because divine momentum isn't a biblical category. To having the big mo, you got to bring... The quality of time, because there's somebody here that you're not playing games with God, but you're discouraged right now because you've tried to obey God and seek God and honor him with valor. And you never saw the miracle. You never saw the answer prayer. Those, those big giant walls between you and God's promise remain intact. They're still standing. And, and you just, you just kind of gave up to a degree. You think it's just not working, not working. Works for David, works for other Christians, doesn't work for me. And, and maybe God is here saying, don't give up yet. Add perseverance to your faith. Boy, this is just a one big formula and works righteousness recipe with a little bit of gospel sprinkled in. 
Well, God, how long do I have to serve you and obey you? As long as it takes. Actually, as long as you have breath. See, when you have that mentality, all of a sudden you see the walls begin to fall in your life. Last week, I gave you my personal theory as to why back in, in Joshua 6, the people had to march around the walls of Jericho the first six days. They watched, went around the wall one time in silence every day. I told you some scholars think that was an act of psychological warfare. They were trying to make the people in Jericho more frightened. I disagree. I mean, when God's going to knock down the walls... What's the matter? What's going on in the hearts of the soldiers, right? I mean, he's going to knock down the walls under their feet. So I don't think it was that. I think it was six days of grace. I think it was six days for the people of Jericho to have a change of heart. Six days for these pagan people to say, look, we shouldn't be here. We're packing our bags. This is your land, not our land. In fact, we want to serve your God. Six days of grace. But day number seven, the grace was done. And God was going to lay siege to the walls. Now, Bible scholars, do you recall how many times on the seventh day the people of God had to march around the wall? How many times? No, seven. Seven times. A little different. Seven times. Seven times. Seven times. Now, here, here's my question. Ready? Why did God call the people, command the people to march around the walls seven times? Answers to see if they would march around the wall seven times. Scripture doesn't give the reason. Because again, put yourself in the sandals of the people back in the day. Weird thing to do. March around the walls. Lord, seven, how many? Seven times a day? I hadn't worked the last six days, but or whatever. Joshua said, God told him, told him, Captain of the host, the armies of the Lord, march around the walls seven times. The wall will fall. So here we are marching around. By the way, Joshua is the new guy. He's kind of untested, but we'll do it one time around the wall. <laughs> he looks as strong as ever, but I'll, I'll keep doing this. I'm just following the person in front of me. Marching around the wall just just twice. Feel a little foolish right now. I mean, shouldn't we have like some battering rams, some some technologies of warfare? I mean, it's my third time around the wall after all. I mean, shouldn't we have some scaffolds or ladders or I mean, what was Joshua thinking? I, I really don't know. I'm on my fourth. This uh, narrative does not appear in the text. Time. I think I hear laughter on the wall. They're mocking us. What's up? What marks in circles? I mean, I'm, I'm on my fifth time now. Going on my fifth time doing this. This this little dialogue or monologue does not appear in Scripture. He's completely sticking it into the text. I'm, all I see is the backside of the person in front of me. I just, I, I feel stupid doing this. I getting my feet are hurting just a little bit. Following just, I, nothing's happening to those walls. Did Joshua really hear God? Is this really his word? Are we really his people? Is this really our land, our promise, our dream? Around the wall, sick. Our land, our promise. Notice how he's equating the story of Israel, you know, you know, basically misapplying it. You know, this is not a typology of God giving you your promise and your dream that he has for your life. No, this is about God's covenant people. And them inheriting the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This isn't about dreams. I mean, he's taken a biblical category, twisted it into something that it's not. You know, God's big vision and dream for your life. What a kind, genie God that is. Six and a half times. Six and a half times. And there's somebody here. You were this close to a breakthrough. 
you were on your sixth time around the wall. You were about to turn the corner. You were this close, but then you biffed it. You didn't obey. You didn't have enough courage. You had fear. You didn't uh, bring hope and vision, and therefore you were almost there. You were an almost Christian. And you just kind of quit. The enemy discouraged you or made you fearful. And God's intersected our lives right now, so I can share a word with you. Get back on your feet. Get up. Why are you living life like that? Why are you on the wrong side of the Jordan? Why is your face in the dirt? Get off your face. Get up. Finish this thing. God wants to bring that miracle to pass in your life. God wants to knock down that barrier between you and his promise. Get up. But I got this little sin. Deal with your sin. Deal with your sin. Give God your sin. You, you deal with your sin. Just give it to God. You know, just you deal with it. Get up. Don't settle for anything less than God's fullness of time and victory. So I told you last week, I don't want to live my life, my brief time on this planet, and not see in my lifetime an authentic movement of God. I don't mean just playing church, a little Sunday thing. I want God to shake this place so big that 40 years from now, pagans are going, what was that? Back a generation ago, those crazy people at Church by the Glades, did you see what they did? you see that powerful thing they did, that redemptive thing, the way they, they shook up South Florida, the way they had influence, the people coming to their God? Did you see that thing they did? I mean, look, they're not smart enough to pull that one off on their own. They had outside help. I want that. I want that. I will pay the price for that. I, I want that. I will obey my God and seek his vision for that. And I'm thinking you're with me. I want to be part of a Joshua generation and see God take down those walls. God hasn't promised to give us a Joshua generation. That doesn't even make biblical sense. See, his people take possession of his promise. Be satisfied with nothing less. When those thoughts of anxiety come in your heart, maybe I've given your heart to Jesus today, tell the devil to shut up because you're going to get up. And be everything God has called you to be. Amen? Father. All right, we're done. So we got a gospel nugget in there, but it didn't. It doesn't make any sense. Here he talks about, oh, it's just a little bit of sin. And he's putting people down, telling them they got to obey and, and, and deal with their sin. And we'll confess it and be forgiven for it. But you've got you to gotta stop. You've got to obey. You've got to get busy because God's going to withhold his mojo from you, his divine momentum. If you don't, uh, if you don't obey and have courage and, and, uh, understand divine vision and hope, those are the four things. It's all up to you, man. Get cracking. Get busy. Complete mishandling of God's law and the gospel. A complete abomin, abominable handling of God's word. I mean, this was, I mean, this was not a sermon series on the book of Joshua. This was a sermon series on heresy, false gospel, false promises. This guy basically claiming that God is promising you things that he didn't promise you or I. Christ has promised us persecution. He hasn't promised us wealth. He hasn't promised us um, career momentum, financial moment, uh, any of that stuff. And what is it? I mean, what does this kind of preaching do? I mean, if I mean, if 
if you you know you're on the lower end of the uh, financial food chain you know you're 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 you know at the at middle of the lower class or bottom of the middle class and and you're struggling to make ends meet um this preaching basically makes it say makes says to you the reason why you're you're dissatisfied and you're not having enough moment is cuz you're just not obeying enough and so what do you do? You try harder. You get on the treadmill. You get on the works righteousness treadmill that he's just established here. And you, and, and, you know, and you kick it up. You know, take it up from a three to a five or a six. You're tr- trying to, you know, show God that you're obedient, but you keep sinning too. Because even David Hughes sins every day. But his, it, that's different for him. Because he's got divine momentum. So apparently he's not, he's got to the point where he is sinning less just enough that god can bless him with divine momentum while you're you know you're on the treadmill huffing and puffing and and you just basically come to the conclusion you know what god probably just hates me i i just can't measure up because i'm looking at my circumstances around me i'm you know i you know i'm not making enough money i'm having a hard time paying bills the economy's got me completely upside down my my spouse is upset at me, and we're not getting along. And even the dog, you know, uh, lifted its leg and and relieved itself on my leg the other day. I mean, so the only thing you can come to the conclusion is is that uh, God doesn't love you because you're just not obedient enough. Yet if you point people to the cross and the forgiveness of sins, they would know that God loved them, even if their economic situation was so bad that they are enslaved to another person. They are forgiven in Christ, and God loves them for the sake of Christ, that regardless of their circumstances, rich or poor, momentum or no momentum, that God loves them and is ridiculously pleased with them because of Christ and his righteousness. You can't beat that. This is a formula for disaster, basically creating... Creating hypocrites who get up and are basically saying, look at me, I'm so righteous because look at God's blessing me with divine momentum, see? And then other people who are stuck and then come to the conclusion that they just can't measure up. Both situations, both results are just utterly tragic. And this is the, that's the fruit of this type of preaching. All law, very little gospel, no coherent understanding of law and gospel, and a complete mangling of God's word. Man, what do you think? <laughs> Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. What do you think? You can send me your feedback. My email address is... um, Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.